situation comedies come and go, but a few, just a few, remain somehow in the public's collective mind. Two prime examples are The Big Bang Theory and The Office. Today we have a star from one of the series and an expert from the other. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my left, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Mayim Bialik was born in San Diego, but grew up in Los Angeles, where, at the age of 11, she knew that she wanted to be an actress and subsequently convinced her parents to allow her to try out for various professional parts. She succeeded in this endeavor by appearing eight times on the sitcom Webster, and additionally by playing a young Bette Midler in the feature film Beaches before landing her own series Blossom. Don't know about the future. That's anybody's guess. Ain't no After concluding the series and graduating from high school, she felt the influence of her Ajakanazi Jewish roots that placed a high emphasis on education. This culminated in her enrolling for college and earning a PhD from UCLA in neuroscience. Amazingly, she would go on to play a neuroscientist for 10 seasons on the highly successful sitcom The Big Bang Theory. Our whole universe was in a hot, dense state that nearly 14 million years ago expansion started. Wait. Today, Mayan Bialik hosts a new series on TBS entitled Celebrity Show Off. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Watching America, Mayan Bialik. Welcome. Thank you for being a part of Watching America. It is such an utter delight to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, one of the things I want to start talking about is um, I find you very, very refreshing because um, you embrace your faith. It's, it's uh, part of me wanted just to say it's not the totality of you, but I'm not so sure. I think it's certainly the foundational part of you. Um, yes, you're an artist. Yes, you're creative. Yes, you're a scientist. But um, you make no bones to use an old expression about the fact that you do have an ardent religious faith, your Judaism, which, as you have described it, brings you to a place of mindfulness. Can you tell us what that means? So my grandparents were um, immigrants from Eastern Europe. So my parents were, were raised as first-generation Americans. And um, while I wasn't raised religious, my mother was raised Orthodox, but I was not raised religious, but I was raised with a very strong notion of, of people and um, being part of an ethnic line and not just a religious line. Um, so uh, I also have a very acute uh, awareness of the state of Israel uh, following the Yom Kippur War. Um, some of my family uh, immigrated to Israel. So I was raised with this knowledge that Israel exists as a place for Jews to, to be safe, to try and be safe. Um, and I've visited Israel every other year or so since I was 16. So um, that's sort of the, the totality of my, my, my Jewish experience. And I did become more observant uh, in college and um, you know, while observance goes up and down in, in various ways, uh, I feel very connected to Jewish learning and um, Jewish practice and Jewish ritual as well. Well, um, your family made Aliyah, and as you said, and went to live there. And so when you would go every other year, would you actually stay with, with relatives or, or would you? Yeah, I still, yeah. And when I go, I still stay with my family. Um, most of my family are religious Zionists which is very complicated, um, and as many of us, even here in America, know, um, we don't always agree politically with our family, but that doesn't mean that um, we don't uh, have the ability to engage with them. Um, but yeah, my family lives in the West Bank, and um, they live pretty far out in the West Bank. They live on an armed settlement, as many religious Zionists do. Um, I also have secular family. I have family on a lovely kibbutz, kibbutz Gezer. Um, and then I have family scattered, you know, through Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and um, kind of varying ranges of religious observance and political ideology. Um, so, yeah, I, I uh, took my older son. We went, uh, my ex-husband and I took both of our mothers and our kids to Israel um, to celebrate our first son's bar mitzvah. 
And depending on the state of the world, God willing, we'll be able to make that trip for our younger son as well. That would be lovely. So um, you came basically from a Reformed background. And uh, Mm -hmm. is it fair to say that your grandparents Orthodox? I mean, did you have dishes and that type of thing in their Um, homes at least? Yeah, I I actually grew up with two sets of dishes. Um, It was a remnant of my mother's Orthodoxy. Um, Yeah, my mother grew up having never eaten out at a restaurant until she met my father, who was um, more more an assimilated uh, Jewish family. Uh, But yeah, my mother was very religious, and so we had a lot of remnants of that growing up. Um, And that's sort of how, you know, how I, when I got married, I had, you know, two sets of dishes and all that. Um, I'm vegan, so now I get to have one set of dishes, which is very (laughs) convenient. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you is is this sense of awareness of your Jewishness. When I heard you talk about rearing your sons, there's a beautiful, absolutely gorgeous sequence where in one video where you are putting uh, a mezuzah uh, diagonally on your door. Mm-hmm. And you spoke about the various mezuzahs. I have had a mezuzah on my door for decades. Um, I, I've been to Israel. I uh, was very moved by the experience there. So you have a strong sense of not only um, biological, uh, if you will, dynasty, because I should point out at 23andMe, you sent away for the DNA test and you came up <laughs> 99 Possibly points. Possibly the most Jewish person that yeah, I've ever Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think you certainly win that regard. Uh, I am very, very curious about your describing yourself as being rather insecure. And, and that's one mm-hmm. of the mo- another endearing thing about you is that you're so honest about it. But at the same time, you put yourself out there and you say you're an introvert. Now, there's a superficial concept of introversion, um, but there's also the reality. Where would you put yourself on that continuum? You you put yourself on YouTube channels talking about the most personal things on earth so effectively. Sure. Well, I think, you know, I think for many of us, you know, we live as extroverts because that's our career, but that's actually very different than uh, what it actually feels like to share that information. So, um I do choose, you know, I am a public person, but in terms of what fills me up and what makes me feel the most comfortable, it's not being out with people. (laughs) So that's kind of the, you know, the classic definition of introvert or extrovert that I go by, um, you know, is being around people and talking and socializing something that makes me feel filled up or depleted. And I tend to be on the depleted end of that. So, you know, the Internet is, in in that sense, a really kind of safe way, um, you know, to be able to share things. Um, but yeah, in general, in my personal life, I definitely, um, I'm, I'm much more of an introvert. Well, you are uh, very much at ease taking, um, moments from your life, uh, if you were a slice of life, proverbially, mm-hmm. and, and being uh, extremely candid about it. One of which is you tried, uh, a comedic stand-up bit that you were semi-reluctant to do. And, um, mm-hmm. the irony is you clearly are a comedian, you're very adroit and clever at it. But this was a different setting, and so you were given a series of words that were flashed up on, on a screen, and you had to respond to them with some pithy... Oh, yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> ...pithy, witty thing that you were supposed to do. And uh, it was very clear from the video as you describe it, because you play it within the video, so it's a you know second-generation mm-hmm. video within a video, that you were falling apart inside. And what I found right. so admirable um, is your willingness to share that uh, with an audience because it's of great benefit. You were also associated with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And so one of the key premises, it's okay not to be okay. What was happening that day and what made you decide to go and release it to the public? Oh, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, what you're talking about is my YouTube channel. Um, yes. And I choose to deal with, yeah, sometimes really uncomfortable and difficult things. Um, and that was, you know, a really terrible experience that, we were filming because we hoped it would go well. And when it didn't, we didn't just want to scrap it because um, I do try and present, you know, my authentic self. And so we decided to, you know, kind of rework, um, you know, rework that dialogue to, to hopefully be helpful to people. You know, I'm not interested in sort of vomiting out every single thing that I think and experience. Believe me, there's plenty of things I don't post on the Internet. But we thought that it might be really comforting for people to see that, um Everybody has those moments and everybody has those insecurities, even people who make, you know, a living, um, you know, having to be public. Well, one of the effects that I think it has is, as, as you've alluded to, is, it, is it, it encourages. It's when somebody can look to somebody of your status, stature in media and say, oh, wow, this woman is going through a similar thing that I've experienced. What was interesting about that is there were those who were trying to comfort you 
and uh, <laughs> not being malicious or mean, you kind of rejected their comfort because what was paramount evidently to you was truth. And mm -hmm. you, you kept saying, no, I didn't do a good job. It wasn't okay. It was pretty horrid. Right. <laughs> are you, are you well, like I think that's also, yeah, I think that's also an important aspect. You know, um, we, we want people to be honest with us. And I think that's, for me, where a lot of my growth has come is from people actually being honest with me and not just saying, you did great. Was that part of your home life? Was your mum, you have your mum appear in various uh, videos that you've done for <laughs> YouTube. Was she a very candid, forthright person and said, no, that wasn't particularly good? Or did she um, pull the punch? Yeah, I mean, my, both of my parents were very supportive. Um, and also, you know, they had a sense of humor that was also very critical and, and kind of wry. But I think, you know, I, I don't think I had unusual parents and that my mom really wanted me to believe that everything I did was fantastic. But I think once we grow up and leave our parents home, we see that that's not always true. Your dad was a tremendous influence on you. And uh, another video that you did was concerning, obviously, the, um, well, not so obviously unless people have seen it, but the demise of your dad, his illness. And mm -hmm. uh, when he was incapacitated, as far as being able to effectively communicate, you intuitively turned to him out of the blue and you said, Dad, would you appreciate hearing music? And evidently mm -hmm. there was a response in the eyes. And you weren't sure at that point how you were going to do it, but then you, you had the notion to open up your laptop and to look for immediate music. And that was a, a communal moment, uh, also a, a comforting moment, like the balm of Gilead, if you will, for your dad at that moment. Um, how did that come about, and how often did you continue that practice? Um, yeah, I mean, this was something that, you know, I didn't plan, but it did occur to me. My father always had a very st strong connection to music, and I was very, um, you know, grateful to kind of keep that going for him. We, we did it quite frequently, um, really, until he passed away. And, you know, I, I think I talk about it in the YouTube video. It was at that time that Bob Dylan had released an album, and my dad and I listened to it. <laughs> dad was like, I don't like this album very much. And I said, yeah, well, sometimes that happens, you know, and we had a good laugh about that. Um, but yeah, music therapy is something that, you know, many, many therapists, um, you know, know is especially helpful for people in pain and, and for people um, in those stages of life. So um, it was a really beautiful way for us to connect, um, since we always connected, you know, through music. You said at the time that um, it had an impact that when you heard those songs, obviously, you know, you can have a song that you love and then you associate perhaps with the breakup of a relationship and it changed mm -hmm. the tenure and tone of that song forever for you. Have you been able, now it's been some time since you lost your daddy, have you been able to hear those tunes again with an ability to smile or are they still an echo of, of a tragic and sad time? Um, you know, I think it's a combination. I think that's kind of the human experience, you know, is being able to, to balance um, that. And, you know, there's certain songs that, you know, will still bring me to tears. But um, also a lot of people will reach out to me and say, oh, I just heard this song and I thought of your dad or you played this at his memorial. So that's also a nice, you know, a nice thing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. My guest is Mayam Bialik. You know her from the early days when she was in, well, a film such as Beaches, for instance, where she played the younger version of Bette Midler. But most of you probably know her from Blossom and certainly from The Big Bang Theory. And regarding the British thing that you're working on, which is uh, an adaption for, and perhaps it's a bit premature, I don't know, but you can give us a little bit of a tease, perhaps, uh, about the doing Miranda. Um, uh -huh. is, is that underway, and are you excited about it? Yes. Um, Fox has ordered 13 episodes, and I'm producing that with Jim Parsons from Big Bang Theory, and we are adapting the BBC show Miranda. Um, our show is called Call Me Cat, and... Um, you know, think a lot of things have been on hold because of the quarantine, um, but we're hoping to start production, if not this fall, then as soon as possible. Now, you named your uh, production company Sad Clown, which is an intriguing name. What made you choose that? Um, there's a joke that there's a man who's uh, very depressed, and he goes to his doctor and says, I'm really depressed, like, I don't know what to do, and the doctor says... Well, there's a circus uh, in town, and there's this amazing clown. And if you go see this clown, he will cheer you up and give you a reason for living. And the man says to the doctor, I am that clown. So I always <laughs> loved that show. <laughs> Called it Sad Clown Productions. When you are wearing the hat as producer, what different skill sets are you bringing versus, saying walking on the set of Big Bang Theory? Um, uh, 
it's, it's a totally um, different yeah, approach. It's very, it's very different. I've, I've never produced um, like this, and I will say that there's a woman named Mackenzie Gabriel Vaught, who is my uh, production executive, and Brandon Klaus, who um, also is one of our production executives. And the two of them really teach me how to be a producer every day. Um, but yeah, it involves reading scripts and approving outlines before they even um, go out. It involves decisions about um, hiring, you know, costume and makeup and wardrobe. It's really kind of having your finger on the pulse of the entire production, um, from production to filming and even post-production. So it's very exciting and very different. But um, I really just can't wait to get to be an actor. <laughs> so um, you're actually going to be playing in it as well, then? Yes, I am. I am the playing lead the lead role. Okay, that's great. Uh, uh, how, how did you discover the series? How did it come to your attention? Besides the fact it's uh, been on the Jim BBC, Parsons company brought it to me. Okay, so um, that's how I heard about it. Okay, and have you seen all the British ones? Um, I've chosen not to watch every single episode because we are taking so much of our show from it um, and putting our own American twist on it. So I've actually decided um, to to use what I know and what I have already seen, but not overwatch it, as it were. Yeah. Um, uh, Too much exposure can just influence you uh, greatly. Are you hoping it's going to be lightning in a bottle like The Office? um, Oh, gosh, I have no idea. You know, my my job is to to do my best. We're very grateful that um, as soon as we are able to start production, that we have so many wonderful um, crew members and production staff ready to go and that we'll be able to be employing people with our production right now at a time in America where um, people really do you know, um, need employment very badly. So um, we're just excited to get started. Will you be doing it on the Fox lot or elsewhere? Um, We actually film at Warner Brothers. We are a Warner Brothers show. So you're in Burbank. Okay. Regarding fame, uh, you seem, as I said at the outset, before we were really officially rolling for the program, um, I said essentially that you struck me as one of the most unaffected celebrities I've encountered. Uh, I find you very, very um, refreshing in that regard. As a famous person, how do you get beyond when you encounter a fan or even not a fan? You just simply go into a restaurant and you have this weird thing of you know that people are responding to you slightly different, not based on the Mayam Bialik, who you really are, but the perception of who they think you are. How do you work through that? Um, You know, kind of one foot in front of the other, I guess. You know, um, these are, you know, first world problems of the highest order. And so I try and keep that in mind. Um, you know, it is very, it can feel very strange, you know, to feel observed. Um, and I think, you know, everyone can have that experience. Um, you know, even if you're not a person on television, we all have that experience of feeling exposed or feeling observed. Um, but you know, I, I behave as best as I can and I'm also a human and I hope that people understand that. Um, mostly when I'm out and about, um, I, try and, you know, give my children as normal an experience as they can have, um, you know, given the fact that they are being raised <laughs> with white privilege in an extremely wealthy country. Um, and yeah, but mostly I want them to still be able to do normal things with their mom. One of the intriguing things about you is your comfort with a notion of parenting, which some people misunderstand, uh, which is called attachment parenting. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people confuse that with helicopter parenting, which is an entirely different thing. Um, but basically, it is allowing yourself to be accessible, particularly even more so in the younger years, to your child. How did you and your children's father um, practice it in a practical fashion that um, worked? Um, well, yeah, I, I actually I, I wrote a book called Beyond the Sling, which was our family's experience yes. um, with attachment parenting. Yeah, helicopter parenting is something very different. I think a lot of people assume that, you know, if you believe in a style of parenting that really tends to the needs of the children, that it means that you subjugate your own, and that's actually not true. Um, you know, as a as a trained neuroscientist, I really felt that, um, you know, things like natural birth are worth, um, you know, having more value in our society. I think that, you know, when we look to countries in this world that have the lowest maternal and infant mortality rates. Those are countries that value things like natural birth and things like midwifery, um, countries that support breastfeeding, um, especially countries that provide maternity leave and in many cases paid paternity leave. Um, those countries see um, really, really good success with the health of, of babies and, and their families. Um, and that's not insignificant. Mayim, I'm going to appeal to your scientific background. So now we switch to Dr. Bialik. 
You have done extensive study on the neurological electrical system, if you will, the firing of, of the brain tissue and, and signals and what have you. And you particularly in your dissertation examined, as I understand it, oxytocin and, mm -hmm. and, and basically uh, vasopressin uh, and how they work. Now, it's involved with mm -hmm. delivery, sexual expression and comfort and what have you. Um, but it is a combination, if you will, of dealing with high emotions between, for instance, love and fear. Um, what attracted you to that? Um, well, I studied, uh, yeah, I studied obsessive compulsive disorder, and so um, those are kind of the underlying mechanisms of obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, as a vegan person, there's um, only a certain a certain number of fields of neuroscience that were available to me if I didn't want to work with animals. So one of the fields um, that um, was available to me was working um, with populations with obsessive compulsive disorder, and so that's what I did. Um, and what that involves was, yeah, learning all about the hypothalamic system, which is the secretion of oxytocin and vasopressin, um, you know, which are important not only in, in pregnancy and in labor, um, but also in, in human bonding. And there is a role for those also in obsessive compulsive disorder. So that's what I looked at. And in regards to that, does it, is it something that you self-analyze? For instance, you, you experience high anxiety, which you've alluded to on a number of occasions. I definitely, I fall on the OCD spectrum, so um, that's also, that's not why I chose to study it, but, you know, I think that's also something I've chosen to uh, be very transparent about, um, you know, especially on my YouTube channel, and I'm very interested in getting more into the field of, of mental health as well, um, looking into starting a podcast, so um, that's something I'm very interested in in particular. Let's talk about homeschooling for a moment. I think one of the most maligned communities uh, are homeschoolers. Now, it's been from my observation that, um, you know, there's this high charge of, well, they don't socialize, they don't have interaction with other people. And mm -hmm. there are some parents that I have encountered who perhaps are not up to par in being able to teach their children. And perhaps it's, a, it's a, either a seclusionist seclusionistic kind of endeavor or um, uh, perhaps uh, an avoidance of the world. And there are cases like that. But students that I have had, and I've, I've been a professor at undergraduate and graduate level, who come from a whole homeschooling environment uh, are superb, really do well. Have you been criticized? And if so, how have you dealt with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about homeschooling, and we started homeschooling. I mean, our children have never been in school. So um, my older son will be 15, and I think a lot of people are understanding more about homeschooling now. In the last, you know, five and ten years, it's become something that more people are talking about and looking to. Um, you know, it's a very personal decision. You have to actually want to have one of the parents be with the children, and a lot of people either are both working or um, don't want to be with their children, which is also their prerogative. So it's it's not something to take lightly. Um, there, there are many homeschool centers, which are really, you know, uh, some people send their kids to homeschool centers all day. That's not something we utilize. Uh, we like most of their schooling to actually occur in the home. But yeah, the notion of kids sitting home alone, you know, never seeing other children is, is not true. Um, homeschool children still participate in, in many outdoor activities, many social activities. Um, sure, it's different when you don't have a class of 30 kids, but, you know, right now I think people are understanding how difficult it is to put kids in a class of 30 kids. So I think homeschooling is getting a lot more attention right now, especially. It certainly is. You have a rustic home. Uh, I was, again, watching all the videos and um, impressed by your kitchen, your cooking skills and what have you. Uh, you have a deep farm sink. Uh, which is copper, which you confess is hard to keep clean. But it is, it's re repurposed. A lot of your shelving has come from other wood. How did you find the house? And how um, did you decide to go with this motif of um, darker woods, natural woods, and uh, uh, I don't want to say um, indelicate services, but hearty service, services? Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a 100-year-old house. It's one of the original homes of, uh, of the part of the valley that I live in. Um, and I like things with character, and, you know, we kind of restored it to its, uh, to its former glory, I guess. I mean, my kids think it's very strange to live in a house where everything's exposed and it's all 
cement blocks and stuff, but um, uh, I'm, I'm very happy with it. We just had to order some new lights, though, because they claim it's too dark to learn to read in. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful house, and it is, it's, you know, rustic is the key word for it, which is sometimes hard mm-hmm. to find in Los Angeles, but uh, you've been able to pull that off to greater plume. One of the great things you also have is uh, a love for uh, cats, kitty cats, and you have mm-hmm. seem to have a plethora of them. Uh, uh-huh. Did you always love cats, or did that develop a little bit later? Yeah, I grew up with cats, um, and these are all rescue cats. There's definitely more of them than than, <laughs> than I would have liked, but there's a lot of interesting circumstances as to how we got these cats. But um, uh, actually, the new Fox show that I'm doing, the woman owns a cat cafe, so we get to deal more with cats. Wow, that would be funny. So, yeah, uh, I've seen these places where people go to stroke cats. Is that it? Where you, you, you... Yeah. Yeah, that's so the character on on this show that I play um, owns a cafe where people come and um, you have coffee and stuff and you get to play with cats. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for your generosity of time and for being a a part of Watching America. It's it's meant a great deal for me to be able to have you on this show. And one of the things one of the things I want to say to you, uh, Maya, is you already know this, but your your name means water. And uh-huh. water is a replenisher of for those who are thirsty. And I think, at least in mood, America right now is in, in quite a drought. And yet you are helping to be, if you will, a, a modified antidote to that by listening to you and, and your life. One thing I want to ask you, and, and that is, what is the thing that you're the most proud of at this point in your life with all of the achievements that you have had? Um, I guess I'm most proud of of being a parent or getting to raise children and also doing it completely imperfectly. You know, I think that's that's a real blessing, and I think it's something that previous generations maybe didn't have the ability to say. Like, I wake up many days and say to my kids, I don't really know what I'm doing today with you. <laughs> Let's figure it out. <laughs> or I don't know how to handle this situation. Let's figure it out together. And um, even though it can sometimes feel... Um, frustrating to them. I think it's important for them to know that I'm human too, you know? Um, And so that's something I guess I'm proud of. And I hope they don't end up in too much therapy because of it. Again, Mayim, thank you so very, very much. We've been speaking with Mayim Bialik, who is the host of the new series Celebrity Show Off. And moreover, she will also be looking very soon towards her own uh, new series based on a a program originally in in Britain on the BBC. Uh, And what's the name of that again? Cat? It's called Call Me Cat. Call Me Cat. Okay. Thank you so very, very much. You've been an utter delight and very generous with your time. And Thank uh, you. Take care. I wish you great blessings. Thank you so much. All right. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don't go away, for there is more show to come. Green is a senior writer for Rolling Stone magazine and the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s. Andy Green, welcome to Watching America. Andy Green is from Cleveland, Ohio. He graduated from Kenyon College and is now a senior writer for Rolling Stone, where he's worked for the past 15 years. He's written cover stories about Radiohead, Howard Stern, and has done special features on Bill Withers, Nathan Fielder, and Steve Perry, Pete Townsend, Stephen King, and many others. He speaks to us now from Brooklyn. But the key thing that you will be interested in, my dear listeners, is the following. He has written a very delightful book entitled The Office. Now, immediately you'll think of the successful television series, both in the UK and in the USA, and I also may say in Germany, in France, uh, in Canada, in Chile, in uh, Sweden, uh, in Israel, uh, also translated and and own productions created in in Czechoslovakian, um, uh, Finnish and Hindi. So to say the very, very least, this has been a rather, well, shall we say, successful enterprise. So The Office, the American version in particular, is The Emphasis by Andy Green. He's written the book again. The title is The Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom 
of the 2000s. And certainly um, that is not uh, um, uh, an erroneous statement. It's completely true. Andy Green, welcome to Watching America. And why, thank you. It's very good to be here. The first question I have for you is um, the idea of creativity. Uh, on either side of the, of the Atlantic. And uh, I do not wish to alienate any of my uh, American audience members, but I, I, I do have to say something which I think is a basic truism. For all of the so-called stodginess that the British are supposed to have, we actually have a very free-form um, openness to creativity. Uh, I will cite an example of John Cleese and other members of Python going to the BBC back in the late 60s and said, we want to do a show. And the executive said, all right, that's very nice. What do you want to do a show on? We don't know, but we just want to do a show. And the BBC characteristically said, go ahead, make the show. And of course, it did become Monty Python's Flying Circus. Very much the same, as you know, happened with Ricky Javez and Stephen Merchant. Uh, they went to the Beeb and actually, they'd done a 15-minute uh, uh, version, kind of, a, if, if you will, just a, a snippet, uh, not even a pilot, a true pilot. And the BBC, BBC said, go ahead and do it. That doesn't happen in America. Did you encounter other examples of that in the series of, of at-length interviews you did with various cast members and producers and people involved in pre-production, post-production and production? Yeah, I spoke to lots of people who talked a, about England as sort of a factory of ideas. For TV, that there's so many, there were there were big reality shows that were all from England. There's so many great sitcoms that are like are, are all in the family or Sanford and Son that a, a lot of Americans they don't even realize that they came from England. The Norman Lear stuff, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the same. It was the it was the same with The Office. That it was a real groundbreaking and bold idea that I can't imagine that any network in the states at that time it was it was going to put it on the air. It, it just wouldn't have happened. It, 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 it was too different. Well, NBC, as you have stated, um, only gave uh, a commitment of, of six episodes. And even after six episodes, they, they weren't so sure they wanted to continue with it. Now, normally, you get a run of 12 or possibly 13 um, for a new yeah. show. Uh, Seinfeld got even less. It only got four. They would, <laughs> for Seinfeld, right. they would commit to four episodes. Um, yeah. NBC did six. What was the turnabout to, to allow them to continue to go with it? It was very cut and go because it was run by Jeff Zucker at the time, and he wanted a new Friends, a new Frasier, a new Seinfeld, a new a new Juggernaut, and a sort of small show about a struggling paper company in Scranton. It, it just didn't seem to him to have potential to to become a Friends, and it was virtually canceled. But that summer saw the release of the Forty Year Old Version, and it was a huge movie, and 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 and. It, it made Steve Carell a big star, and that sort of gave him the incentive to sort of try again and do a few more episodes of The Office. It, it was very cut and go for it. It was very, it was very touch and go for a very long time. Well, I think one of the differences between the UK version, which was, uh, again, for people who are just joining us, uh, was created by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, the UK version only had two series of six episodes, so in total yeah. uh, 12, and then they had a two-part Christmas special. Whereas the American yeah. version, as you are well aware, went on for nine seasons from 05 to 2013. Um, is it fair to say that perhaps, and, and I sound very jaundiced in this particular episode of Watching America, and I don't mean to, but the, the, the money is the thing more so in the U.S. than perhaps in Britain? Yeah, I, I, I spoke to a bunch of the British producers, and they couldn't imagine doing that many episodes. It was so foreign to them. And even the writers of the U.S. show felt that doing 22 a season or, or doing 26 some seasons, it was simply too many. When you're doing mass production on that scale, that's a quality dips. And some writers told me that if they were doing 13 a season, they'd be much funnier. But they were so rushed that it was really hard to just maintain quality. Well, let's talk about the, the de development of the different characterizations. Uh, the British version, version with Ricky Javez has David Brent, um, okay. who is um, basically uh, unaware, although on some levels I think he is self-aware, the character of his, of his uh, grievous limitations. And then we have the yeah. counterpart, Michael Scott. How did they decide on Michael Scott, or Steve Carroll, I should say? In the first six episodes, Steve Carell is kind of imitating Ricky Gervais. And it's not very successful. 
in the uh, in the pilot, he mock fires Pam, who's his secretary, and she's sobbing and she's forlorn and he laughs at her, and he's just very unlikable. And so they retooled him in the second season, and they really infused him full of humanity and warmth, where you understood that he was desperately lonely, and he saw his colleagues as, as his family, and he just wanted friends. And when you understood that, you forgave a lot of his quirks and his, and his bouts of cruelty. Well, one of the things that you did extensively, and I really enjoyed it, is you, you spoke to many of the writers. And it was interesting to see the different take that each of the writers would have. Some actually saw the character of Michael Scott uh, as as being self-aware, and others said, no, he's not self-aware. So there's this ambiguity you know, in the writer's office about how they're actually um, uh, portraying this, this character, this extremely vulnerable, irritating, and yet somehow endearing character uh, for all of his unintentional buffoonery. Uh, one of the things that I'm interested in about is the showrunner and the basic arc to the series. How did that change over the years? I think in the early seasons, it was a lot of the love story between Jim and Pam and the sort of this sort of yearning for each other, but they couldn't be together because she was engaged to somebody else. And sort of developing in like that story was a bunch. What well, that just occupied a, a lot of their energy as they slowly evolved Michael Scott. Very gradually across seasons, he became more self-aware, a bit more confident, a bit more competent, and just a bit more mature. And by season seven, as he leaves, he was engaged. He, he no longer saw the office as his family. He saw them as his friends. And he was able like to leave and sort of and, – and you felt good about him. I think that I think the struggle they faced is once Jim and Pam got together and were coupled up in the fourth season, that that crackling tension was gone, and and that sort of and that and that left a void that, that they never quite figured out about how to fill it. One of the the very unique facets to the series, of course, uh, right from the genesis with the UK version, following through with the international versions, is it is a, of a sort of a mockumentary. Um, that wasn't an innovation uh, purely attributable to Ricky Gervais. You can go back to Woody Allen. Back in the 60s, he did a fake documentary called Take the Money and Run. We've all seen Spinal Tap, Rob Reimler directing. Uh, but the usage of a, a technique called cinema verite, which is basically a naturalism, where you have cameras supposedly who are uh, snooping around, uh, sometimes direct aside to the camera, but other times just observing things. How is that able to go for nine years without an explanation of what this film crew is doing there. Yeah, it was a constant debate in the writer's room that it makes no sense that a paper company in Scranton, Ohio was being filmed for nine years. (laughs) And they never air it. It's just ridiculous. So they had fierce debates about whether or not not they should show the camera crew and make them characters and and explain what's happening. And it it was Michael Shore who went on to the to Good Place and so many great shows who was the loudest voice of of we can't show it, it will tear down the entire fabric of the show. They need to do never explain it. But by the ninth season he was gone and they knew the show was ending, so they felt so they felt the freedom to finally show the camera crew and, and explain it, and it was very unsatisfying. It was very unfunny, and it just didn't work. Well, yeah, you're pulling back the veil, and 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 basically, I think that one would have to be extremely fortunate to see the particular episode where it's addressed, and thereafter, it, it wouldn't make a difference to a, a mass audience anyway. We just kind of buy into the the myth, actually, that we are part of this uh, forever-ending, eternal uh, crew, looking at, uh, in fact, in a sense, dailies. Uh, as yeah. far as the, the look of the show, I was extremely impressed. And I thought that the locations were absolutely marvelous that were employed. I mean, here you're shooting a show in Los Angeles that really does look like it's in Pennsylvania. Uh, that was not the case with Seinfeld. Seinfeld never looked like New York. Um, you couldn't yeah. buy into it. It was all glitzy and very, very sunny perpetually and did not have that overcast, sometimes, you know, occasional uh, uh, northeast weather kind of look. But they pulled it off to great. Uh, success with the look of Pennsylvania, albeit in Los Angeles. And part of that was because of the usage of actual locations where they used practicals, lightings, and so on and so forth. What did you learn from the people who were involved with set design and, and location yeah, it scouting? Was, 
it was a constant conversation to find the Scranton in Los Angeles, yeah. which is which is pretty tough because it's yes. a very different climate. But they but but they but they shot in Van Nuys, which is a very unglamorous part of LA in the valley, and right. they shot at a warehouse on some dead end street by an actual junkyard, <laughs> and they filled the office up that was with actual Scranton props. They they had trucks from Scranton that that would come in filled with with like pizza boxes, and books and posters and and bumper stickers and so it, it was all authentic. And then if 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 they, if they film driving scenes, they go through frame by frame and remove the palm trees. I mean it was very difficult, but they wanted to feel real, which is amazing because they never shot one moment in Scranton. The actual office itself, were there breakaway walls? or I mean, was it uh, an office no. within a warehouse? There were no breakaway walls. It was just what it was. Yeah, in the first season, which is just, which is just the six episodes, it was shot in an actual office. that They, they refitted it, but it, it was a real office. And they rebuilt it in season two. And a, a big rule was that there were no breakaway walls. If, and so the camera crew... They'd squeeze into corners and be very uncomfortable, and the shot would would look different, but you would feel it would feel real. They did. that was a big rule that 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 the set couldn't change. During the table reads, and for our audience, a table read is basically when you get your first sight, at least the cast get their first sight of a script, and so they sit around a table with number two pencils. And people read their lines. It's rather dry, unfulfilling, um, but it's uh, just an initial necessary step in in a go-through to get to the final product. Um, Evidently, according to your work, uh, it it seems quite clear that uh, Steve Carell had great difficulty with not being extremely flat and rather uninteresting, but then he'd bring it off when it actually came to performance time. Was that a standard thing with him or did he ever uh, change in the curve there? Yeah, no, it, it, it was standard form that he he would do a very dry read, but when they were filming about a second before the camera would turn on, that the actors described to me a process where his eyes would almost change. He'd become the character, and take after take, he would just give them gold. And as soon as the camera stopped, he was Steve again. But he really knew the character, he felt it, and he gave the editors just so much to work with. If they shot a if they shot a scene six times, he'd do it six different ways, which just was so useful in in the process of trying to what to what cut it down to just twenty two minutes. Well, the secondary uh, most important role was that of office assistant or assistant to uh, the man. What was the term that was always used? It with? was it John- was the assistant. It was the assistant to the regional manager. Okay, so Dwight Schrude would say, yes, yeah. exactly. Okay, so Rain Wilson um, just, just owned that completely. Uh, the the yeah. British counterpart by, uh, by uh, Mackenzie Crook, uh, playing uh, Gareth Keenan, was, was still very, very clever, but he wasn't yeah. able to, to go to the places, obviously, with the, with the luxury of nine seasons that um, Rain Wilson did. Is Rain Wilson now facing the, the problem of not being able to get away from Dwight Schrute? Yeah, I think for the comic relief, it's always the hardest. It was hard for Gilligan. It's hard for Steve Urkel. I think there's something about being the comic relief character on a show or just the goofiest character on a show where you get trapped in that. And he's made movies and everything, but the character of Dwight he made was so singular, so bizarre, this crazy paradox of contradictions that it's hard to sort of look at his face and not see Dwight. Well, he was a bit of a shapeshifter throughout the series because, I mean, one minute he was uh, syncophat with, with, with Michael, and the next minute it'd be, uh, if you suit, suited him, be ready to put the, the, the dagger in the back of yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was uh, very skitzy in the, in the way he betrayed him. Um, obviously, the character of Jim Halpert was extremely important, played by John uh, Krasinski. And John has gone on to do wonderful things. He's, a, he's now a bona fide director in, in his own right. Uh, he can mm-hmm. certainly carry an adventure series. We know that now. Um, and then Martin Freeman, with the counterpoint in, in the British series, um, obviously went on to do Sherlock and other works and uh, has had a very successful stage career. There's been many comparisons made between The Office uh, and Curb Your Enthusiasm, another series which I adore. Uh, yeah. Larry David... 
would have uh, at best a, a general scenario of what he wanted to do in a given scene. He still shoots that way. Uh, and yeah. he won't reveal it to the actors until the last minute. And he says, this is your objective. Just play along with me. Let's see what happens. So the shooting ratio is extremely high to what they actually walk away with. So they do multiple takes, and uh, it's, it's, it's not with the same degree of pre precision, although extremely effective nonetheless. A lot of people assumed that The Office was done the same way, but it wasn't. Right from the start with Ricky, um, you had a very disciplined script. What yes. do you make of the one style versus the other? You know, I think I think Larry David is such a singular. He's the center of of the show, and he writes it. So I think it works for him. On a network show that, that that's like The Office, but it's such a huge ensemble. It'll be harder to to pull it off. Right. And there's so many writers. It's this huge writers' room. It would be, it would it would be upwards of like 13 people that would that would that would really labor over those scripts. So so they didn't want it played with. And it has to be so tight. It has to be three seven-minute chunks. So it's so precise. It just didn't make sense to give them all that freedom. Uh, as Steve Carell, he was given some freedom, and he would, and he would have some fun on, on the fourth, fifth, and sixth take. But, but for the most part, it was very tightly scripted. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Andy Green, I am most happy to say. He has written a book called The Office, The Untold Story of the Greatest Sitcom of the 2000s, and I think that that is not an exaggeration by any means. He's a lead writer for uh, Rolling Stone magazine, has been, in fact, for 15 years with, with that publication. Um, as far as the background going on. Was, he, was there any significant infighting, Andy, on the USA version of The Office? Well, I think that they got along very well, but as the show went on, it, it got difficult because they're making movies. So to schedule 14 people, A, a on The Hangover or whatever, it got difficult because they had days that they didn't have Steve Carell there. They had days that they didn't have Ed Helms there. And some of the others, they sort of they like they they got resentful that they were given favored nation status to the stars, and that and they had to work a on their schedules. And in the writers' room, there's a real struggle about what to do after Steve Carell left. It was just this huge question, and there's so many opinions, and it was this huge crisis, and they never really figured it out. How much money do you know? Did they actually throw? at uh, Steve Carell to try and compel him to stay? I heard it from most people. They didn't offer him all that much money. That he, that he was basically not offered a eighth season. Really? That the show wasn't... Yeah, it's shocking to me, but I, I was told this by the producers and by lots of the cast um, that NBC was tired of being in fourth place, that they had 30 Rock, they had Community, they had Parks and Rec, they had The Office, and they were these critical favorite shows, but they didn't get huge ratings, and CBS was just slaying them. And when Jeff Zucker left and Bob Greenblatt, when he took over, he wanted to reboot NBC to the glory days of must-see TV. And that didn't mean that at the office was going to like to like keep going. So he wasn't offered a contract according to most sources. Andy, what do you think is the most underrated genius part of the series? I think it was Greg Daniels, who was the showrunner who worked on like King of the Hill and Simpsons. He always told the writers it had to be grounded in reality, that this can't be a foolish sitcom that these characters need to feel real. You need to understand. You you need to know about why Michael Scott is still employed. He was a constant voice of realism and realism and realism. It was, it was his mantra. And when he left to do Parks and Rec, that realism it, it kind of vanished, and the show got more sitcommy. So I think that he was the heart of the show in so many ways. To what extent has the show influenced other series besides you just, just mentioned Parks and Recreation, but um, uh, others in that vein? I think a I think the biggest one would be Modern Family, which is shot mockumentary style, but they but they never they don't acknowledge the cameras in the way they did on The Office. I think it made the laugh track just seem very passe. I think it made music cues like seem passe, but 
a lot of people on the office in the in the writers' room said that they were surprised that it didn't change TV more than it did. That besides Parks and Rec and and Modern Family, that there weren't many shows that have attempted to do the same thing. Finally, what was the key thing that surprised you the most in your interviews? Some revelation, perhaps, that came out and you thought, gosh, I didn't see that coming from left field. I was very surprised they almost had James Gandolfini as the boss in season eight and nine, that they met with him multiple times, and he was very eager to be seen as something other than Tony Soprano. Mm. And they came within one inch of a contract, and I think I think had they hired him, that they could have they could have maybe saved the show in the post Steve Carell era. Wow, I'm trying to envision that. I can one can see it, but it is certainly surprising to say the very least. And then yeah. I said final, but I'll ask one more post final question. How has this exercise of writing this particular book, immersing yourself so heavily, uh, deeply? into the world of the office changed you? It's made me appreciate the art of making a TV show in a way that I never had before. I didn't realize how much went into every script, how they wrote and they rewrote and they rewrote and they shot more than they edited and they edited and just how every moment of it was obsessed over and everything on the screen was thought about. And I just didn't realize it was such a thoughtful medium. Well, I have to tell you, Andy Green, I've read many books about the creation of television series, and this is one of the best. His book is entitled The Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s. And as I said at the outset, Andy Green is a longtime writer, now senior writer for Rolling Stone. He's been with them for 15 years, has done many, many works, and this is perhaps one of his most intriguing and interesting one. It ain't just about comedy, folks. It's about the serious side of production and uh, creativity and an analysis and uh, also a very affectionate peek into a world which is very often secluded and hidden from us save for our television screens. Andy Green, thank you so much for being part of Watching America. Bless you. It's been a delight chatting with you. Thank you. It it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. And Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.